This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon Church, it's good to be with you again as we continue to walk through the book of John. When we came down, I'm thinking back through the time when I moved down here to plant Icon. And I remember when uh, you're spending time gathering people, spending time casting vision, spending time trying to see what it looks like to plant a church in Atlanta. And we came to this really difficult time. I got to this point where uh, I had to start raising money. And I remember being so mortified at having to ask people for money. And it's something that has to happen. You can't function as a church without resources. There are things that need to be done. And I was told if you're going to raise money, people don't give to numbers. People don't give to facts. They give to story. I always struggled with that because I feel like it's super easy to manipulate. And I was like, I don't want to be a manipulator. I don't want to be manipulative. I want to be real. And and these facts and figures, they should matter to people. And they should. But we are story-formed people. It's just what it is. We are people that respond to story. We respond to narrative before we respond to numbers. And so we have to be responsible with that. And hopefully good leaders will incorporate numbers and narrative in a very faithful way so that we can actually make and be about God's business and about God's kingdom. In other words, people will give to a story they believe in. Resources are never wasted when, it's, when they are spent in the direction of stories we believe in, stories that we care about. When our hearts are pulled toward a story that we believe in, we'll give our time, we'll give our talent, we'll give our treasure, we'll give our very lives. And so when we think about, think about you, think about what it is that you give yourself to. What story do you give yourself to? In other words, what do you expound? What do you give of your time, talent, and treasure to because you believe so much in the story? What I'm gonna say today is that any story that you give to that is rooted in you exclusively, you are giving to a story that will lead to a wasting of your life. We waste our lives when we give, when we generously give to stories that are rooted solely in us. In our passage today, we're gonna look at what it means to have a life that on the outside might look like a waste of a life, but it isn't when we're giving to the story of Jesus, to the work of Jesus, to the kingdom of Jesus. A kingdom life is never a wasted life. And so when we walk through this text in John 12, be, be thinking or be asking that question to yourself, what do I give myself to? Is my life, am I on the path of a life that one could look at and say that's a wasted life? Am I living a life that's focused primarily on, on me or something bigger than me, the very kingdom of God? We're gonna read John chapter 12, verses one through 11. And then we're gonna look at a few examples Uh, Some examples of what it means to not waste your life and some examples of what it means to waste your life. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet 
with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you think through a life that's when you think through a life that is worth investing in or a life that you want to make sure you don't waste, this passage gives so much insight into how the Christian, the follower of Jesus, should function, right? What it means for us to give time, talent, treasure. I have to say, this, this passage is one that I had not really looked into as deeply as I have this time. I was overwhelmed to, to understand just what is really at play here. And even the agents, the actors in this story, the characters that we see here, super, there's some incredible uh, truths that are coming out here that I've just never seen before. This story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, there's some things that we could easily miss if we don't look at this with the kind of eyes that a Middle Easterner would have, right? An ancient Middle Easterner would have during this time. So just look at the, the very first passage here. The first verse, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Where, what's happening at this point? What's already occurred? We already talked about uh, John 11. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's caused all kinds of commotion. People are already angry, wanting to kill Jesus. Jesus has determined not to be there in Jerusalem any longer. He's left, he's gone uh, back to where John the Baptist had started his ministry. He's kind of laying low. He doesn't want to have a whole lot of attention on himself. And so he's kind of retreated back into kind of a, a much more of a quiet environment, less people around. He's avoiding the Jews during that time because he knows that they're out to kill him. And now for whatever reason, the six days before the Passover, keep in mind, this is the third and final time we're gonna see Jesus at the Passover during his ministry. This is six days, really, these are the last, uh, the last week before his death. He knows that, but he shows back up in that area, he comes to Bethany. Why? Because they're throwing a party, a banquet for him. Mary and Martha are throwing a party, throwing a banquet for Jesus. Why? Because he raised their brother from the dead. Lazarus has been raised. It's interesting that this is the first time that you see Jesus being celebrated. Who are the people? that throw the first party for Jesus? Who are the people that demonstrate celebrating Jesus on this huge public way? These women. You've got Mary and Martha. These women become the first ones to demonstratively show real praise and worship for Jesus, for what he's done. I think it's very telling. Sometimes we can bypass so often women kind of get added in as a throw-in in the story. And yet this is a major focal point of the story. 
these women do something we've not seen any of the, the, the male disciples uh, do. We've not seen anyone show this kind of praise and worship for Jesus. And yet Mary and Martha are saying, we're so overwhelmed by the incredible grace and mercy that you've shown that we want to celebrate you. We want to throw a party for you. We want to spare no expense for you because it's not a waste. The time, the talent, the treasure that it takes to put a party on like this, it's not a waste because your story is the story that means the most to us. So you see, uh, Jesus comes to this party. It says, obviously, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was reclining at the table. Be an incredible uh, time just to be able to see what that must have looked like. We see other stories where we're seeing uh, the way that Mary and Martha would work. And there are times when they'd be with Jesus and Martha's working. And Martha is wondering why Mary isn't doing uh, some of that work. That isn't necessarily a, a critique. We see that Martha is all about getting some of the main things done. Listen, you can't get anything done without preparation. You can't get anything done without people figuring out where the chairs need to go, where the tables need to go, where the food needs to go. That is an extension of our worship too. Don't think that only doing the, the, the act of worship or singing, if we're in church and uh, preaching and dancing, whatever that is, those things are worshipful, but also the preparatory time, that's also worshipful. You've got Mary and Martha doing what it is that they do best. You've got them functioning in whatever their gifts are in order to put on a party in order to celebrate Jesus. Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Then we see something happen. So just imagine, sit back and just imagine uh, being at a party in the Middle East back in, in like 30 to 33 uh, AD. Just imagine what that must have been like. They're sitting there and they're super relaxed people. There's food that's cooking. They're smelling the food. They're ready to eat. People are reclining back, having conversations, probably asking Lazarus, what was it like being dead? Probably asking Jesus, how'd you do that? Like they're wondering a lot of things, celebrating this incredible moment. Lazarus is alive. Jesus is responsible. We're celebrating him. And all of a sudden you see this incredible thing happen. They probably hear it happen first. It says here, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this story is recorded uh, in, in both Mark and John. And Mark records the story a little differently. It's not, a, it's not in any way a, a contradiction, but Mark includes certain details because there's certain themes he wants to get across to his readers. And so he focuses on the fact that when Mary shows up, Mary, the brother of Lazarus, uh, comes on the scene, breaks this flask of perfume and starts to pour it over his head. Now, here in John, it shows us that she also poured some of that onto his feet. This doesn't mean that there's a contradiction. It just shows that uh, Mark is trying to show Mary as this incredible host who's anointing the head of her uh, very cherished guest. It was not uncommon for hosts to throw parties, to throw banquets. And when uh, esteemed guests would come, they would use a little bit of perfume to be able to put a little bit of perfumed oil and drop it into their hair because there was something about being out on the hot, dry Middle Eastern streets, very uncomfortable, coming into the house and having this sweet aromatic scent being kind of uh, poured over you a little bit. And they would rub it through their hair and their face, and it just made it for a more pleasant experience. So she shows up on the scene. Imagine this. 
imagine just sitting there and you're listening to these stories and enjoying uh, good food and wine and, and just celebrating time together. And you hear this breaking of the flask. You have to imagine everybody is sitting there in, in rapt attention, just wondering, what was that sound? I heard something break. She doesn't just drop it. She breaks this flask. She pours it over his head to the extent that it goes down his hair, down his beard, through the skirted linens that he's wearing, all the way down to his feet, so much so that it begins to overflow. It almost feels like the line in uh, Psalm 23, 5, anoint my head that my cup runneth over. This is exactly what's happening. You're seeing in many ways that prophetically coming true. She's anointed his head and it's running over so much that it's spilling over his feet onto the ground. And then she drops to her knees and takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with it. Now, that is, there, there's so much in this because we have to understand just how much this, how valuable this perfume is. We need to know just how much of an investment this is into this story. You see, when, when, when you look at the type of perfume that's here, this is incredibly expensive perfume. This perfume was something known as uh, spikenard. And so spikenard was one of the rarest, most expensive perfumes in all of the land. You had several uh, historians that would talk about how valuable this was. We see historical records that show that both in the Greek era, people really loved this perfume. Wealthy Roman women loved this perfume. It was incredibly rare, but it was in incredible high demand. One of the things that we know is that spikenard is this very, it comes from this, uh, the root of this plant that can only be found in the, in the uh, upper levels of the Himalayan mountains. So in order to be able to get spikenard, what you'd have to do is you'd have to have merchants that would sail all the way across to India, go up into the Himalayan mountains, grab this, this root that was such a, a, a unique uh, root from this plant called the Jadamansi plant. Look it up. It's wild when you see it. You can actually see what the, what the uh, perfume would look like, what the oil looks like when it comes out. They would go there, they'd have to distill the roots so that they could actually extract the oil in order to be able to create this perfume. Now, what we know is that you could have a huge bulk of these roots and you would only get about 3%, only 3% would produce. You get about 3% of oil to be able to come out as a result. It wasn't a lot. You had to go through a lot of work in order to be able to produce uh, that amount of oil. Then you'd have to then get back on a ship, bring it back and s in order to be able to sell it. So you know because it was rare and because it was hard to get, it was hard to acquire, it was hard to make, all of that distillation process was long and it was hard, which made it very expensive. This is another reason why it's a good chance that Mary and Martha were likely very wealthy. It's, it's, it's very likely that in order for them to be able to have the kind of money just to be able to have that type of expensive perfume, they would have to have come from a wealthy family. Some wonder if maybe uh, Mary and Martha uh, and, and Lazarus, their parents had money and their parents may have died. And because Mary and Martha were not, uh, would not have been able to inherit any of that money being women in that society, Lazarus would have likely been the one that would have been responsible for caring for them. They likely had a lot of money as a, as a wealthy family. And so Mary has this very expensive, rare perfume. Think about things that are rare. Think about things that you value monetarily. You would never just haphazardly waste it. You would never just throw caution to the wind and say, hey, I've got this ex extremely expensive perfume. By the way, many uh, experts think that this perfume could have cost anywhere between 6,000 of our dollars today to about 24,000 of our dollars today. 
incredibly expensive. And for whatever, for a very clear reason, she knows that the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus is worth her greatest treasure. There's not a treasure that she has that she will not generously spend and give because of her love and devotion to Jesus. That's what it means to not live a wasted life. To say, no matter what it is that I have, no matter how much I value this, I'm willing to use this, to give this, to lose this for the sake of glorifying God. That is an incredible story. This is the first example we see of people following Jesus like a disciple and actually showing this kind of worship, this kind of obedience, this kind of faith. And we're seeing it from this woman. So what do we have? We've got the, imagine again, being the scene. All of a sudden, uh, the, 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 all of the jovial uh, celebration has been interrupted by the sound of this breaking alabaster flask. And all of a sudden we're seeing this kind of, this incredibly uh, uh, beautifully smelling liquid starting to flow down. And they're watching and they're going, what is happening here? We're seeing all this stuff go down and all of a sudden she, go, she goes, Mary goes from taking the role of a host. Here she is taking the role of a host, hosting Jesus by anointing his head. Then she takes the role of a servant by dropping to her knees, taking her hair and wiping his feet where all of the excess oil fell. There's a lot in that because what we're seeing is that Mary is showing you, not only does she want to host Jesus well, she wants to serve him well. And here's something else she didn't mind losing. She didn't mind losing her treasure, right? She was willing to give that up. She also didn't mind losing her reputation. You see, during that time, for a woman to let her hair down, actually co communicated something about whatever, about a type of morality people assumed she may have had. You see, many people thought that when women would lower their hair, that was a sign that they had loose morals. And you would see even people who would function like prostitutes uh, doing that. So that's the reason why I think people throughout uh, history, and especially historians, male historians have often just assumed that this Mary must have been a prostitute. But no, nothing in the text tells us that she was a prostitute. If anything, she was willing to almost risk the reputation of people thinking that because she wanted to serve Jesus well. She said, listen, the only treasure I have is this perfume, so I'm going to anoint you because you're my king. The only thing I have in my hand, I don't have a towel, I don't have anything else. I will risk my reputation, drop my, the locks of my hair, and wipe your feet because you're worth it. My reputation is worth losing, it's worth soiling if it means celebrating you, if it means worshiping you. This is what it means to not live a wasted life. And so uh, Mary shows an, an incredible example of what it means to follow Jesus. Mary shows an incredible example of what it means to really be a disciple. This is the first real act of a devoted disciple of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. The first real act. There are, there are professions that have been made, for sure. And yes, are there disciples, some of these disciples who Jesus says, hey, stop what you're doing, follow me? Sure. If we want to look at that as like following, absolutely. But this is the first demonstrated act of following that we see in the scripture, and it's from a woman, which is just super powerful. Now, one of the disciples of Jesus is watching this, Judas Iscariot. And John does a great job. John, I feel like, is the king of parenthetic statements. I mean, he just gives a whole lot of extra tea to let you know what's coming. He doesn't like get, you let the art of surprise come upon you. He lets you know, by the way, he's getting ready to betray him. And so Judas, the one who's going to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
Number one, that's how we know how expensive this was because this is almost 300 days wages. And he knows that this is super ex- expensive. He knows that it's rare. He sees the act of devotion that she's showing. And he responds with something that on the surface you might say is good. He responds by saying, wait a minute. <clears throat> she's, she's wasting all of this good perfume when that perfume could have been sold to be able to help the poor. Now, John also mentions uh, something to us. He says, um, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. John almost sounds like, like some of the gossiping grannies that I had in my family growing up, where they were like, I know he's saying that, but really, he's really no good. That's kind of what he's doing here. He's letting you know that, uh, honestly, Judas is just no good. Now, what is Judas doing, though? He does what we can be prone to do. Right. You see someone showing real devotion. You see someone doing something that shows what it means to follow Jesus well. And you realize that that's not something you do or you realize it's something you're not even capable right now of doing. And you start to feel offended on your own. And so you start looking for ways to poke holes in what they're doing. And so he looks at that and he goes, wait a minute, she could have done that. She could have totally sold that. But we realize it's not just that he's feeling guilty about what she's doing. He's realizing I had an opportunity to get more money because we see later he was actually taking money from the treasury bag. He was skimming off the top every time. You see, what a wasted life looks like is a life that's devoted more to self than anything else. You see, for Judas, his whole plan was I, I, any kind of money they would bring in, apparently they were collecting money along the way. They needed money to be able to survive this band of, of disciples. And Judas was skimming off the top. And he was so angry that he was looking at these incredible acts of worship and devotion and trying to figure out how can I monetize that for myself? Why? Because he's living a life whose story is wrapped up in him, not in Jesus. He's living a life that's not wrapped up in the story of Jesus's life, his work, his death, and his eventual resurrection. Any life that's not rooted in that, it's a wasted life. Judas is uh, so focused on it. One of, the, one of the things that he does in his focus is actually he does something that we often will see in our society now. People are uh, trying to, to express something that Jesus cares about, trying to express the heart of God. And oftentimes people get so frustrated by the fact that this heart of God is being displayed in a way that they may not share. And so they start doing the what you call the whataboutisms. Well, what about that issue over there? They don't really care about that issue, but they want to deflect from that because they don't want to deal with the real issue. And that is they have a heart that isn't truly generous. They have a heart that's not wrapped up in the story of Jesus. They have a heart that's wrapped in the story of self. So in in contrast to Mary and Martha, who are showing us what it means to not waste a life, to not waste your life, to wrap your life in devotion, to to let your life be predicated upon the story, the life, the work of Jesus. Judas shows us another thing. You can be close to Jesus. You can have close proximity to Jesus. You can have stories with Jesus and not at all be a follower of him. Judas is showing us that in many ways, and I think we need to realize this too, whenever we see people who are advocating for the heart of Jesus, and maybe what they're advocating for is something that we just don't agree with for any number of reasons, either selfish reasons here, or maybe ignorance on our part, maybe ways in which we've not done enough research, and so we just have strong opinions that might be wrong. The approach, the approach that we often can take to say, well, no, I don't want to talk about this. I just want to talk about that other issue. Check that. Find out what makes you do that, because it might be rooted in selfishness. It definitely isn't rooted in selflessness. 
This idea, this is no different than when people are right now. We've got folks that are protesting to talk about the disproportionate policing of, of black and brown lives. And when they say black lives matter and people will bring up other issues, well, what about black on black crime? What about these issues? These whataboutisms are convenient pivots away from what people are saying the heart of God is. And that's why Jesus makes, it, makes the point. There is no point that no one is saying that caring for the poor is bad. You're bringing that up right now. That's not the issue. Look at what Jesus says. He said, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. You know, that's important too. They may not even realize yet that Jesus is going to die. We don't know for sure. Could Mary have had a, a deeper belief that he uh, may be getting ready to die? It's possible. Could she be anointing his body and, and, and symbolically? It's possible. What we know for sure is she's excited about Lazarus being here. And so we know that. We don't know for sure that they knew that he was going to die. Jesus starts to tell them, let her be. She is, has kept this for the day of my burial. And then he says, you always will have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Now, sadly, some people have taken that text as an excuse to just not care so much about the poor. That's not the context here at all. Jesus is basically saying, you tried, you tried it, Judas. You thought that by comparing care for the poor, you thought that maybe we could deflect attention away from the bigger issue. And the bigger issue is that all devotion should be wrapped up in my story. And you realize Jesus is the only one that could say that. Right. Jesus is making a, a, a huge statement here, making it about him. For anybody else, that would be incredibly selfish. For any of us to make the story about us, to make the story about our church, to make the story about our whatever movement we're a part of, to make that the bigger story than, than, anything, than anything else we could think of, that actually would be really selfish and it could be wrapped up in a lot of sin. But Jesus is the only one for whom when he is the main story, when he is the center of the story, it's in your best interest. He's the only one where you can say that. If you make yourself the center of your story, it is not good for anybody else when you do that. If I make myself the center of this church, it is not good for this church when I do that. If you make yourself the center of whatever issue, when people are mourning and you make yourself the issue, when people are mourning horrible injustice and you try to add in by going, well, I've, I've suffered a thing or two in my life and that's it, you've completely lost the, the conversation. You've completely proven yourself to not be selfless. You've made yourself into this very selfish person that's rooted in themselves. No one, it, it doesn't bode well for anyone when any of us function that way. But Jesus is the only one that, if you want to use the word, can be selfish. He's the only one that can actually say, my story is the story that matters most. Why? Because your story gets better because of it. And so Judas is, he's basically looking at Judas and saying, you're always going to have the poor here. That doesn't mean overlook the poor or not care about the poor. What he's really saying is, if you recognize who I am, you'll love the poor even better. The poor is a, people are going to have to deal with poor people for as long as sin nature exists. And there's disproportionate power dynamics and the ways that people exploit until all of that changes. Poor people are going to be here and we have to do the work to be able to undo some of that. But you will never love the poor well if it's not rooted in a deep devotion to Jesus. So he's looking at Judas and saying, you're focusing on the poor. This isn't even about the poor. The poor is going to be here. You're not always going to have me. And really, you don't have me now. Judas clearly didn't really have a real relationship with Jesus, and he really wasn't following him for the right reasons. Again, close proximity to, to the things about Jesus, close proximity to the stories of Jesus does not mean you're following him. And so as he makes this point, it's such a, it's a powerful one because Judas, you have to wonder what Judas is thinking. Judas already knows 
what's happening on, on his heart level. We know that he's been stealing. <clears throat> we know that he has not been really following Jesus, and yet Jesus calls him out because he's not rooted in Jesus's story. And then we see that a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Again, we see what a wasted life looks like here. It's great. We've got these two women who are showing us what a, what a, a rightly invested life looks like. Then we have these group of men who are showing you what a wasted life looks like. Judas has already shown you what a wasted life looks like. We know that because eventually he gets to the point where he takes his own life. I think he comes to grip with just how much of a waste his investment actually was. And then you see these, these religious leaders. Now, what are they seeing? These chief priests, they've already been told that they don't follow God. They've already been told they don't understand the heart of the Father. They've already been told that Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. They've already been told that Jesus is indeed God. They've heard all these things. And they've so badly wanted to see Jesus trip up. The problem is they can't do anything about this miracle he just did. There are several other miracles that have happened that they may have been able to, to, to say, well, I know you heard that, but there's more to that story. Well, I know that you heard about him doing that thing at that wedding that one time, but that's not really the real truth. We had folks that were there. It, that wine was already there. They could have easily been passing all kinds of lies around. Yeah, I know that you heard that story about the guy, the lame man, but there's some other things about that story that you may not know. Uh, he could walk a little bit. People didn't know that before, but we know that now. There could be any number of lies to try to cover up these miracles that Jesus did. The problem is there's a dead man that's walking. They can't do anything about that. Now, if a non-wasted life, a life that's truly invested rightly in the story of Jesus, you know what they would want to do? They would want to engage the evidence. They would want to celebrate the evidence. They would want to relish in the idea that this is true evidence that God is walking among us. That would make anyone super excited. Because now the story of Jesus is one that I want to wrap myself into. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. The Messiah is here. We have a man who we knew was dead for four days. We know that there was a man who we could verify he was dead because we could smell the stench of his rotting, decomposing body. And now we're looking at the evidence of this man with nothing but the sweet aroma of a worshipful disciple. In other words, a wasted or a non-wasted life is one that wants to engage Jesus everywhere he shows up. The problem is these leaders were so upset because as should have been the case, there were folks who wanted to see Jesus. They were starting to leave the, the sect that these Jews were a part of. They were starting to follow Jesus. They were becoming uh, believers. The scripture says they were deserting them. They were deserting these groups of Jews who were anti-Jesus. And so these men are looking and they're going, instead of investing in and celebrating the evidence, instead they were so rooted in self, they wanted to maintain power and control. And so instead of investing and engaging the evidence, they would rather tamper and get rid of the evidence. What do they want to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus. It's a scary thing. You know that you've lived a wasted life when you go out of your way to avoid Jesus to deny Jesus, to delete any evidence that the work of Jesus is at play. That's a wasted life. It doesn't matter how talented you are. 
It doesn't matter how many people like you. It doesn't matter how many likes we have. It doesn't matter how many followers we have. It doesn't matter what our resume says. If I'm actively running away from every evidence that shows that the work of Jesus is at play, that the kingdom of God is at hand, I am wasting my life. And here we have these men, these leaders, these Jewish leaders that are so angry that they would rather tamper with the evidence. They would rather assassinate the evidence than engage the evidence. We've said this many times at this church, we should live lives, invest our lives in such a way in which Jesus is always the unavoidable issue. And yet they're going out of their way to avoid. What kind of a life are you living? Would you say that you're living a life that is a a well-invested life? a life that is rooted in the story of Jesus? Or would you say, you know, when I think about the things that are most important to me, when I think about the ways that I invest my time, my talent, my treasure, I would have to say that it's not really rooted truly in the story of Jesus. It's not really rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not really rooted in the heart, the very mission of God. It's not rooted in real kingdom uh, uh, endeavors. I have to be honest and say, Honestly, all of the work that I'm putting in, it feels like a wasted life, if I'm honest. These are the ones for whom Jesus came. We are all wrestling with this this temptation to waste our life. We are wrestling with the temptation to invest ourselves in things that don't matter. We are wrestling with the temptation to invest in things that will allow us to feel like we remain the captain of our own ships. What are you investing in? You notice when when Mary invested, her investment wasn't just, it was spontaneous, it was generous, and she was responding to Jesus himself. There's got to be something in us that says, I'm so overwhelmed by the life, the death, the resurrection, the work of Jesus. I'm so overwhelmed by what it means to be reconciled to God. I'm so overwhelmed by that, that I can't do anything else but respond with investing everything I have, losing my life that I might gain it. And actually, that's what uh, we see the life of Jesus as we go forward and you start seeing exactly what Jesus does. I think it's really unique. It's very interesting that here these folks are wanting to celebrate Jesus, wanting to celebrate the work that he's just done, wanting to celebrate the fact that their brother has been resurrected and they throw a banquet. And what we see that in the end, when Jesus returns, he's throwing us a banquet. And he's throwing us a banquet in the same way that they threw a banquet for Jesus for raising Lazarus. Jesus throws a banquet because we've been raised in him. Jesus throws a banquet to say, this is, this is the love that I show for you. This is the honor that I've shown to you because of the work I've done for you on your behalf. I lived this life. I died this horrendous death and I resurrected so that you can join me at the table. You can join me at the banquet. I want you at this marriage supper of the lamb because you are my bride. You are my church. I love you. If you're not overwhelmed by that, you'll never be generous. There's a sense in which we are responding to generosity and that's how we live a generous life. So when people are in need, whether materially, whether there's systemic issues, we are so overwhelmed by all the ways that Jesus has reconciled us, that Jesus has called us to this incredible banquet, that we can't help but to throw a banquet for folks who need it. We can't help but to throw, uh, to be able to uh, create environments where people can get what they need and people can be celebrated for the things that make God happy. 
The only way we do that is when we've been overwhelmed by this incredible generosity that Jesus shows. This is why when we think through the connection between the spiritual and what happens naturally, those things are, they, they kiss, they, they're married together. What we know is that the, the ability for Mary to be able to show real generosity was because she was so overwhelmed by the generosity of Jesus. Are you living a wasted life? If your life, if the investments in your life are not reflective of the generosity that Jesus has shown you, I can guarantee you that your life is being wasted. So my question to you today is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus? What does it mean to be someone who is not so focused on investing in self, but investing in Jesus and investing in the kingdom? That's what it means to join him at the banquet. That's what it means to join him at the table. That's what it means to be a part of his family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, um, I, I thank you so much for the ways in which you have created us to be generous. We know that we are so far from that on our own. God, I pray that we would even check our motives when we give, whether it's our time, our talent, our treasure to each other and to you. I pray that you would check our motives in a way that makes us ask the question, whose story is it? Is it our story or is it your story? God, thank you for inviting us into your story. Thank you for inviting us to the banquet. Thank you for resurrecting for us. Thank you for giving us the guarantee that we join you in resurrection. God, I pray that you would make us a selfless people. I pray that you would make us a holy people. I pray that you would make us a people that's so jealous for your kingdom here on earth that we want to give, give, give of ourselves, that we are willing to lose any and everything for your sake, because it's your story and it's not ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.